All right, well, look, we get the privilege now of looking into God's Word together. So turn with me, please, to Luke chapter 13. Now, Hebrews 4 verse 12 says, The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword. And as we come to the Word of God today, that's the reality for each and every one of us. We are being addressed by God himself. It's sharper than any two-edged sword. You know, we think that we're reading the Bible, but in reality, it is reading us. It is coming after us to pierce us. And this section of Scripture is no exception. I want us to once again understand that we are in the crowd this morning as Jesus addresses us. So if you want a title for this morning's message, I've called it The Vital Reality of True Repentance. And we're going to be reading together the first nine verses of Luke chapter 13. This is the word of the Lord. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all of the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Or those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard, and he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now I have come seeking fruit on this fig tree. And I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, Sir, let it alone this year also, until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. Let's pray. Lord, we do thank you for your word. And Lord, I do pray that we would once again realize that our faces are in the crowd this morning. And we are being addressed by you. Lord, you are the one who spins the galaxies. You're one who created all things. You're the one who saved us by your grace through the cross. And now you're speaking to us directly. Teach us, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. In a life, as I said a few weeks ago, really is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think. Just a few weeks ago, I started my message with the story of Shane Warne, the Australian cricketer who sadly died suddenly at 52 years old in Thailand. He had had a heart attack. No one saw it coming. Everyone was surprised. For one minute, he's living. Next minute, he's gone. Just a few days later, we heard the report of Kimberly Kitching, the Victorian Labour senator, also 52 years old, also had a heart attack. Just a few days after that, we heard the story of Japanese encephalitis, a virus that affects the brain. We will die, and it's in Australian mosquitoes. You think, my, this is serious stuff. Anything could take us any moment. I mean, if COVID didn't get you now, mosquitoes are going to kill you. The truth is, for all of us, life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think. Kent Hughes says it this way. He says, it is no secret and never has been. Many things have been hidden from the minds of men, but it has always been entirely clear that we are going to die. 
The day is coming when all our earthly possessions will be swept away, including our ability to enjoy and even perceive them, and our very flesh will be required of us. The earth will close over our skins and we will all be like a brown crumbling leaf that blows away and vanishes. We don't like to think about it. We don't often like to engage our brains about it. Even our cemeteries now are a million miles away from churches. In the olden days, when you used to have a parish in the United Kingdom from the 1500s or 1600s, the graveyard would be around. That was deliberate. Because the church wanted their congregants to be walking through dead people to remind themselves of this is going to be me one day. But now cemeteries are a million miles away from us, so we're not faced with death very often until people like Shane Warne die and Kimberly Kitching, and then it becomes in our faces. Life is so much more fragile and finite than we care to think. And the question that Jesus has been asking us and placarding really over this entire text from chapter 12, verse 35, all the way to the end of chapter 13, verse 9, is simply this. Are you ready? Are you ready? See, right at the start of this section in chapter 12, verse 35 to 48, Jesus explains that he's coming back. He is the master of the house and one day he will return and he will return for his servants and he will peer in as to what they're doing. And he tells us in that chapter that when he comes, he will come like a thief in the night. You never know when that moment's going to arrive. You can't plan for it or prepare for it because it's going to happen in a moment. And if you're thinking right now, I totally unexpected it. I don't expect it in any way to happen today. That makes it all the more likely. He's going to come when you don't expect it. And then he goes on in chapter 12, verse 49 to 59, to explain that when he comes, he's coming back to judge the living and the dead. As Hebrews 9, verse 27 tells us, man is destined to die once, and after that, faces judgment. And Jesus is making it clear again and again, when I return, when I come, I will judge the living and the dead. And this really is the third part of that message series. It's the third part of the story because right here in Luke 13 verses 1 to 9, what Jesus does, I think, is sit us down as a crowd and explains to us how to be ready. In light of the reality that he's coming back like a thief in the night, in light of the reality that he's coming back to judge the living and the dead, this is how we prepare our lives for it. And the one thing that I think we learn then from this text is simply this. That if we're truly going to be ready for Jesus' return, then there's nothing more vital to our lives than the reality of true repentance. Above everything else in our lives, everything we do, everything we think, everything we are, there is nothing more important in our lives as we prepare for that day than the reality of true repentance being real in our hearts. That's what this text is about. I have three points this morning. Number one, the background of repentance. Number two, the foreground of repentance. And then number three, the fruit of repentance. But really just one hope. And it's my hope that for each and every person in the crowd this morning, that true repentance would be your story. That it would be a reality in your lives. That if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, that even as I preach this word, you would repent of your sin and put your faith in Jesus. And if you're here today and you do know Jesus Christ, 
That you would realize repentance is an ongoing thing that involves fruit. And that you would live for the Lord each and every day of your lives. True repentance is so vital for everything we believe and are. Three points in this morning. Then number one, the background of repentance. You see, for the, for the diamond of repentance to truly sparkle, we have to first see the black cloth on which it is placed. And that's what my first point is all about. I remember when uh, Emma and I went to buy an eternity ring for her. And she told me that I didn't spend very much on her engagement ring. It's kind of true. So when it came to the eternity time, she wanted big bucks to make up for it. That was the way it was going to go. And so she chose this special jewelers. I am, um, what was that? What are you? That, that is so the truth. It was clear. This is not the time to have a conflict. Why are the fights and quarrels? Because the cravings within, my love. Just think about it. That is true. That is true. I spent not a lot on Emma's engagement ring. So the eternity ring was the big ticket item. And so she chose this jewelers and we walk in and I knew it was a bad sign when they greeted me at the door and said, would you like a glass of champagne? I knew that was a bad sign for all that was about to take place. And so we walk in. Emma thought we are totally in the right place. I'm like, we are in the wrong place. I'm thinking more Kmart, Walmart, something like that, different. And this place has got, no, I'm joking. I'm joking. Spend at least a year's salary on the ring. Anyway. So we go in this jewelers and I knew it was a bad sign. We're sipping the champagne and they bring a few out and you're like, this is lovely. They're all like just by themselves. I, don't, I like it when there's about a hundred in each thing. No, this one's coming out by itself. <laughs> and then as they do it, they pull out this black piece of velvet and they put it all over the desk. And you think, what are you doing? Well, what they were doing was they were giving the diamond a backdrop because when they then brought out the diamond ring, it sparkled incredibly because of the backdrop. See, the diamond of repentance will never sparkle unless we understand the backdrop. All this text actually will never amaze us unless we understand the black velvet behind it. And really, as a young man growing up, I didn't understand the black velvet at all. I want to make sure you do. See, for me, growing up, I thought of God as a really good guy, like a Santa Claus, a genie in the lamp. Somebody you could sit on his knee when you're struggling and he'll give you a hug. And help you with some things and look after you when you can't sleep in the night. That was my understanding of God. He's a really beautiful, kind guy who will help me when I'm in trouble. And he's just love. He's just this bundle of love, whatever happens in all things at all times. I used to think of God as just good and that's the end of the story. And my friends, he is good. But if that's all we think, our understanding of God is radically short of the reality. Because God is good, but he is also holy, and that changes everything. See, so often when we think of holiness, we think of the Pope or a church building or a style of dress or mannerisms that are holier than thou. But holiness simply means separateness. To be holy means set apart, and that is exactly who God is. God is set apart from us, first and foremost, in his capabilities, He is above and beyond us in every way, is he not? Isaiah 40 verse 12 says, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand? Or with the breadth of his hand marked off the heavens? Who has held the dust of the earth in a basket? Or weighed the mountains on the scales and the hills in a balance? You just get placarded before your eyes. God is so much different to you. 
Who amongst us can mark off the heavens with the breadth of their hand? Who amongst us can hold all the waters of the earth in the hollow of their hand? Only God can do these things. Only God can measure the mountains on scales. Only God before him are we like even the most powerful of nations, like a drop in a bucket before him. He's totally separate from us in each and every way. That's why Job 26 verse 14 says, and these are just the outer fringes of his works. Everything you can see, they're just the outer fringes of his works. He is totally set apart from us in his capabilities. And likewise, he is totally set apart from us in his moral purity. And that's massive. He is totally sinless. Totally clean. Totally perfect in every way. A.W. Tozer says this about God's holiness. He says, we cannot grasp the divine holiness by thinking of something very pure and then raising the concept to the highest degree we are capable of. God's holiness is not simply the best we know, infinitely bettered. No. God's holiness stands apart, unique, unapproachable. And incomprehensible. My friends, God's holiness is so different to ours. His holiness stands apart, unique, unapproachable, and incomprehensible. He is unique in his excellency. He is peerless in his perfections. He is solitary in his majesty. He is morally pure in each and every way, in a way that we can't even imagine. Such is his cleanliness. Such is his ability to dwell in unapproachable light. And it is that reality of God's holiness and moral purity that leave you and leave me with such a great problem. A man is destined to die once and after that he faces judgment. If you some people that doesn't sound like a big deal. And it doesn't sound like a big deal because they don't believe it. They're like, well, that sounds great, but I don't think that's really true. Well, that might be the case. But you go ahead and jump out of a plane without a parachute because you say gravity isn't true. It's still going to be true. Just because we don't believe it doesn't mean it's not true. The Bible states it many times that we will all give an account before the Lord. And some people, even when they give in to that, say, well, even if that's true, I'm not too worried about it. Because compared to other people, I'm pretty sweet. I mean, everybody thinks that, don't they? When you think about your moral purity, where do we score ourselves? About a 60, 70%. No one says 100%. I'm really amazing. And no one says 20%. Everybody kind of puts themselves about halfway. It's a bit like a karate. If you've ever done karate, you've got the white belts at one end and the black belts at the other end. So if you're like a brown belt and you're going through the moves, you don't look at the black belts because they're really good. You look at the white belts, go, yeah, you're not very good. Check out my moves. Yeah. <laughs> we all do that in humanity. And so some people aren't worried about standing and giving account before their lives because they think, well, compared to these people, I'm a lot better than them. I'm pretty sure if there's a cut, I'll make it. But the truth of the Bible is clear that when we stand before God and give an account for our lives, he doesn't compare us to others. He compares us to this word, his standards. His standards where he tells us to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your strength and to love your neighbor like yourself. There are instructions all the way through this word of his account of what he wants us to stand by. Literally, we are called to be holy as he is holy. And that gives us a great problem. Why? Because we ain't. Romans 3 verse 23, Paul tells us, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And it's true, hasn't it? We know it. We've fallen short. 
I haven't loved the Lord my God with all my heart and mind and strength all the time, every day. I haven't. I haven't loved and loved my neighbor as myself all the time. I haven't. I stand guilty. We all stand guilty. And it's because of that guilt that we find ourselves in such a great danger with so many consequences. See, first up, our sin, it cuts us off from God. Isaiah 59 verses 1 to 2 says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save, or his ear dull, that it cannot hear. But your iniquities have made a separation between you and your God, and your sins have hidden his face from you so that he does not hear. That verse explains to us that because of our sin, there is a great chasm between us and God. It is a great and vast chasm. And people think, well, I might go to church, I might pray, I might read my Bible, and that maybe that's going to help me jump over the chasm. It ain't going to work. That chasm is so vast, you cannot make your way back there by yourself. In our sin, we are cut off from God. In his holiness and our sinfulness, we are cut off from him. But more than that, because of our sin, we are in a collision course with his righteous and just judgment. And the Bible is clear that where we are found in sin, heaven will not be our home. Hell will be our home. I spoke about hell just a few weeks ago. And I said then that there is no biblical concept more grim or terror-invoking than the idea of hell. And it's true. Biblically defined, hell is an eternity before the righteous, ever-burning wrath of God, a punishment from which there is no escape, no relief, and no end. And when we stand before God on that last day and give an account before our lives, if we've not hit this standard, hell will be our home. You know, for many years of my life, I used to hear that and just think, to be honest, that seems really harsh and a bit over the top. And I think people can think that. Like, I don't think people are that bad. So what, hell for all eternity and a punishment that has no relief, no escape and no end? It just sounds over the top. You know the reason why we find that over the top? Because we fail to recognize just how holy he is. And we fail to recognize just how sinful we are. We narrow the whole thing so it doesn't seem so bad. But one day we'll see it as he really is. We'll see how perfect he is and how bad we are and how we are deserving of that. The Bible makes it clear that hell will be our home for where we are found in sin. And that, my friends, is the black cloth that we need to put on the table before we look at the diamond of repentance. But the diamond of repentance is a diamond. Because what I've just described for you is a punishment that he so eagerly wants us to avoid. That's why he sent his son on the greatest rescue mission ever told. And that's why Jesus stands before us this morning in Luke chapter 13 addressing us about the way of escape. Point two, the foreground of repentance. Having laid out the black cloth, let me now examine the foreground of repentance. Let's read together verses one through five. There were some present at that very time who told him about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And he answered them, do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than all the other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Are those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? Do you think that they are worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
Jesus brings into view right here in this section two things, the Galilean atrocity and a Judean accident. And he brings it into view and talks about it for two reasons, a minor reason and a major reason. The minor reason, the side note reason, is he wants to correct their faulty thinking. You see, as they're bringing up this idea of about these Galileans, what they're really talking to Jesus about is this. They honestly believed at this time and generally believed the great tragedies and misfortunes were always a result of great personal sin. That was their understanding. When bad things happened to alleged good people, they were obviously not good people. They were bad people. There was sin in their lives that must have been hidden, and that's why God issues these types of punishments on their lives. Do you remember in John chapter 9, there's a man who's been born blind, and they go to Jesus, hey, Jesus, and was it because of his sin or his parents' sin that he's blind? That's the concept. Great tragedies, great difficulties happen to us because of our sin or our forefathers' sin. And so that's why they're bringing this up about the Galileans. So we hear first about the Galileans whose blood the Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. What's that about? Well, it's an event that they would have all seemed to have known about. That's why the crowd is bringing it up. It would appear as best we can tell that this was an event that took place at Passover because that was the only time that laymen, i.e. Galilean or otherwise, were involved in the slaughter of animal sacrifices. Outside of the Passover, it was just the priests. But it was the laymen that started to do it at that time. And it would seem here that these victims, then the Galilean pilgrims, that had been offering Passover sacrifices in the temple, and for whatever reason, Pilate had taken a disliking to them, and so he sent in, a troop, sent in troops and he slaughtered them with their sacrifices. That's what took place. And their premise is, hey, Jesus, just to confirm, what was the guilt of their sin that caused God to punish them in that way? Why did that happen? Jesus then brings up another example. And he says, so what about the 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed them? He asked them a question. Do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? The point is the crowd at this point would have been going, yeah, yeah I suppose so. Yeah, what had they done? What had they done that was so bad that caused that tower to fall on them? Their understanding is that great tragedies and misfortunes are always a result of great personal sin. And twice Jesus says to them, no, I tell you. What he's saying is, that is not the way it works. And folks, if you're ever tempted to think that great tragedies and misfortunes happen to always happen to people because of their sin, that is faulty theology. It is not true. And it is from the word of Jesus himself. The reality of life and the reality of living in a fallen world is that death happens. Tragedies happen. Misfortunes happen and come to all. They happen to the righteous and the unrighteous. They happen to people who really love Jesus and people who don't know him at all. So Jesus, right up front, as a side note, is correcting their faulty theology. And correcting this idea that bad things happen to people as always as a result of their sin. And explaining, no, it doesn't work like that. Things happen to people. We're in tragedies. We live in a fallen world. But he takes this talk and then he gives them a broader lesson, a prior and most important meaning that he wants them to understand. And he takes these illustrations and twice in verse 3 and verse 5, he says, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 
He takes these pictures of what has actually happened in history. And he takes them to this perishing. You see, when he talks about perishing, he's giving them a broader lesson. Because just like every other time he mentions perishing, he's not just talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. He's talking about the black cloth. He's talking about judgment and hell to come. A punishment from which there is no escape and no relief and no end. And he's explaining to them, unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. You will suffer a consequence far worse than a a wall falling upon you or somebody coming in to slaughter you. For one day I'm coming back and you are given an account of your life. And unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Just in case anybody in the crowd was thinking, oh, I don't think he means me. He uses the word all. Every single one of you. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. He takes us to the black cloth of the reality of God's holiness and judgment and our sin. But then he starts to bring out this glimmering diamond. And it's the way of repentance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's a way. There's a way to escape it. There's a way to escape judgment. There's a way to escape consequence. And oh my, what a glimmering hope of repentance this really is, is it not? We understand in our lives we deserve the consequences of our sin. But right here, he's introducing to us a reality, a way of escaping that. A way of escaping the consequences of our sin personally. And my, my friends, make no mistake, even now, Jesus, as he preaches this to us in, John, in Luke chapter 13, is on his way to Jerusalem to make a way for that repentance to be possible. Without Jesus, there is no story of repentance. Without Jesus, there is no chance nor opportunity. In 2 Corinthians 5 verse 21, We read, for our sake, he made him, meaning Jesus, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My friends, what a happy discovery, don't you think? We were dead in our transgressions and sins. We were sinful before him. But for our sake, he made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin, so that in Jesus we might become the righteousness of God. Our sin was paid for. By Jesus at Calvary. We were dead. We were without hope. And then Jesus steps up to the plate and talks to the Father and makes it clear. Listen, they need a Savior. I'll do it. Send me in. I'll go after them and rescue them. And on his way to Calvary, when he gets there, he gives his life away as a ransom for many. He dies as our substitute. He appeases the wrath of God by drinking the cup of God's wrath to the full. He did it as a ransom for many. And when he cried out on the cross, it is finished. The way of repentance was now open. It was possible through repentance to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior and know forgiveness and redemption and adoption and heaven is our home. And that's what he was doing at the cross. He was making the way of repentance open. J.C. Ryle talks about what this meant for Jesus. He says, forever let us bear in mind that all Christ's sufferings are on our behalf, were endured willingly, 
voluntarily and of his own free choice. They were not submitted to patiently merely because he could not avoid them. They were not born without a murmur merely because he could not escape them. No, he died an agonizing death, distressed until it was accomplished with a willing and ready mind. For it is a certain fact, if men would only believe it, that Christ is far more willing to save us than we are to be saved. So true. Even as Jesus speaks to us about this great diamond of the way of repentance, he is more willing to save us than the crowd is often willing to be saved. But nonetheless, he makes a way. And we see here in this scripture twice that this way is the way of repentance. Unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. Now, what then is repentance? And church, I think we need to be crystal clear on this. Because this is like a big deal. This is the way. This is it. Crescendo, lights on, boom. What is it? If that is the key to unlocking my salvation, if that is the key to no forgiveness and redemption, if that is the key to escaping this punishment, what is it? Well, I submit to you this is what it is. Repentance is a sorrowful change of mind that brings with it a glorious change of direction. It's a sorrowful change of mind that brings with it a glorious change of direction. See, some people think, well, listen, I I think you just have to believe. You just have to believe in Jesus and then you're saved. Mm, Depends what you mean by belief. Because the Bible tells us even the demons believe and they ain't saved. So some mental acquisition of, oh, I think it's true. I think Jesus was the Son of God. I'm, I'm in, yeah. No, no, you're not in. You just believe he's the Son of God. That isn't repentance. Some people think that repentance is just some type of emotional feeling of regret and remorse. So I'm repentant when I just feel deeply and sincerely sorry. Listen, that's great. But all that is is a deep and deep and honest feeling of remorse and sorrow. It's important, but that's not repentance either. It's a deep feeling of remorse and sorrow. Some people think that repentance is a life of penance before the Lord. So I've realized who he is. I've realized what he's done. Oh, my goodness. I need to earn now his affection. I need to earn his salvation. And so they spend their life doing tons and tons of things, trying to earn some type of penance before the Lord. That isn't repentance. That's penance. Let's be clear, church. Repentance is a sorrowful change of mind that brings with it a glorious change of direction. I think Romans 10 verse 9, Paul outlines it incredibly well. He says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. See, that's what true repentance is. It is believing in a sorrowful change of mind that, listen, Lord, I'm aware that I've sinned before you. I've realized for the first time in my life that I'm actually a sinner, that I've blown it in my life, and I'm sorry for that. I don't want to keep living for myself. Would you take me? I want to take you as Lord and Savior. Would you forgive me of my sin? That's a sorrowful change of mind. It's being broken before the Lord and aware. I've blown it before him, and I need a Savior. I'm stuffed without him. That's what it means to take to, to believe that God raised him from the dead. It's believing in the gospel and realizing I need that for me. I need to apportion his death to my life. And then 
It's also confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. That's not like a one-time act. It's not like we stand in the garden and go, okay, here we go. Jesus is Lord. I'm in. Isn't this great? No, it's talking about a lifestyle that bears the fruits of repentance in your life. In response to this sorrowful change of mind that says, Lord, I need you. Would you forgive me of my sin? I take you as Lord and Savior. I want to make you like the king of my life. I want to live for you. I no longer want to live for myself. I want to do all I can to live for your glory. It says in the Bible that at that moment, the Holy Spirit comes to live in your life. And guess what? He brings fruits. Fruits of gentleness and joy and patience. Fruits of desire to live for Jesus. You can't help it. Because it's there. And that's what this repentance is. It is a sorrowful change of mind that brings with it a glorious change of direction. And to make sure that we really understand that this really does bring with it a change of direction and brings with it fruits, Jesus then gives this parable in verses 6 through 9 to seal the deal, if you will. And that's my third point, the fruit of repentance. See, there's no doubt that this true repentance brings with it a glorious change of direction. It doesn't work just to say, yeah, I believe, but I'm still going to sleep with my girlfriend. I'm still going to do what I want, and I'm not really going to live for Jesus. I don't really like the church. Well, you might be on a journey towards Jesus then, but you're not saved yet. You're just on a journey because he hasn't really become your king. And you don't read this with eyes that say, man, Jesus is everything to me. I just want to follow him. In fact, you don't read this at all. Because you still want to just have Jesus as some type of bumper sticker on the back of your car, thinking you're saved. But you don't want to follow him. Which means you're near, but you're not in yet. And Jesus makes that clear right here. He gives us this following brief parable to make sure that we really understand that our lives will bear fruit if we're really saved. So what he says. And he told this parable. A man had a fig tree planted in his vineyard. And he came seeking fruit on it and found none. And he said to the vine dresser, look, for three years now, I've come seeking fruit on this fig tree and I find none. Cut it down. Why should it use up the ground? And he answered him, sir, let it alone this year also until I dig around it and put on manure. Then if it should bear fruit next year, well and good. But if not, you can cut it down. It has three main symbols and characters in this parable. There's a fig tree, there's an owner, there's a vine dresser, but quite frankly, there's one main point. And the one main point is that if we are truly repentant, then our lives will inevitably bear good fruit. They'll bear the fruit of repentance in our lives. They'll bear the fruit of salvation. We won't be able to help ourselves. This is why James in chapter 2 verse 17 says, so also faith by itself if it does not have works, is dead. He's not preaching a different gospel. He's saying, no, listen, I get it. To be truly saved, then you have to repent. You have to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that he rose from the dead. You have to believe this. But if you really believe it, that belief won't be alone. That belief will bear fruit in your life. You won't be able to help it. So faith by itself, it's dead. It's not really true. So too with repentance. Repentance by itself, it does not bear fruit. It isn't true repentance. John Piper puts an exclamation mark on this when he says the following. He says, we must always keep this distinction clear in our minds regarding our attitudes and actions, i.e. fruits. For they do not earn, 
they exhibit. They do not merit, they mark. And they do not deserve, they demonstrate. I think that's such a helpful description. Listen, the fruits of salvation in our life, they don't earn our salvation. They don't merit it. They don't deserve it. But they do exhibit it. They do mark it. And they do demonstrate it. Why? Because you won't be able to help yourself when the Holy Spirit lives in your life. When you've actually taken Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you'll want to live for him. You'll want to please him. And guess what? Your life will reveal that. That is exactly what Jesus is giving this parable for right here in verses 6 through 9. He's helping us see that if repentance is real, it will bear fruit. So my friends, I want to ask you, by way of conclusion, are you ready? Because you never know when your time's going to be up. You never know when the Lord is going to demand your life from you. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand before him as king and kings and give an account for your life? See, if you're here today and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then I want to graciously but honestly tell you, you are not ready. It would be a disaster for you to die right now or for Jesus to return. Because you are not ready. But I want to urge you to get yourself ready today by truly repenting. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, then you will be saved. It's a guarantee. It's an opportunity for everybody. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, Paul tells us. And so I want to urge you, if you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, then even now as we close in song and as we spend time together, just find a time in this service to say, Lord, I repent. Lord, I realize I have messed up before you and I take you as my Lord and Savior. My friends, if you do that and it is genuine and it is real, then it says that in that very moment, there's a party going in heaven because of you. Because in that moment, your life has just changed. In that moment, you're forgiven of your sin and redeemed. You can know that heaven is your home. I did that when I was 20 years old and I've never looked back since. Maybe today is your day. Don't put it off. It's the best decision I ever made. It's the best decision you will ever make. Maybe though you're here today and you are already a believer, which is most of you. My friends, I want to encourage you as the sun sets thin on this three-part series from these different sections. Do all you can to get yourself ready by bearing the fruits of true repentance. My friends, this was never just a one-time hit, just some decision that we make randomly and it's like a ticket to heaven. No, we're called to run hard. And the truth is for all of us, church, we have one chance, don't we? And I'm looking around. Been a pastor here for 12 years. No one's getting any younger. Tell me. We're all aging. And one day the aging will stop and we'll start to have more funerals. And you never know when that moment's coming. Church, I want to exhort you, run hard for Jesus. Do all you can to bear the fruits of repentance in your life. Seek to follow him with all your heart. Really, truly take up your cross and deny yourself and follow him. Maybe you're thinking, oh, this is just so hard though. There's so many things that have got to change. And I get that. Well, my friends, I just want to remind you, who is at work in your heart?
And I don't want you to miss it. Because in verses 8 and 9 of that parable, it's clear that each of the fig trees has a vine dresser. A vine dresser that is working hard on the roots, working hard to fuel them, working hard to save them and give them grace. You know who the vine dresser of your life is? Jesus. We're not alone. He's the one who works in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He's the one that is in you even now to help you to bear these fruits in your life. So keep looking to bear those fruits and keep looking up. And when that moment comes, may we all be ready. Amen. Let's pray. Well, Lord, it is our desire to be ready for you. And Lord, I thank you for slowing us down in this gospel of Luke, unhurried, to address us three times in your word about the importance of being ready. Lord, I pray for each of us in the room that we wouldn't just hear that instruction, but we would heed it. We would listen to your word and realize you're not just talking to the masses, you're talking to me. Lord, would we be aware that on that last day, we're not standing there giving an account for the masses. We're standing by ourselves. Giving an account for just us. Oh Lord, I pray on that day that for each member of Sovereign Grace Church, that what they would hear from you is well done, good and faithful servant. Lord, I pray they would hear that because in truth they've run hard. They've not just heard your word, but they've heeded it in their lives. Lord, help us. We cannot do this by ourselves, but you are the faithful vine dresser of our hearts. Holy Spirit, I ask you, invite you, please help us as Christians. Help us to follow you. Help us to bear this fruit in our lives. Help us to run hard for this finishing line. Not tiring to do good, but running good and hard for your glory. Lord, well done then. Well done on that day. Be what we hear. In Jesus' name.